Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined by my recurring co-host, Roy Jones. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. We interview CEOs, industry specialists, authors, and activists with stories, books, tips, and resources to help you and your organization succeed. Thank you to our new and loyal listeners, and please don't forget to rate the show. Reviews help us secure the guests that provide the value you hear each week. At Altus Marketing, we believe that cookie cutters belong in your kitchen drawer, not in your fundraising agency's toolbox. That's why we create fully custom fundraising campaigns backed by sophisticated analytics and machine learning that drive massive revenue. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at aolson at altusmktg.com to learn how customized direct response fundraising can improve donor engagement and revenue for your organization. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show today. So we're, we are here today with my good friend and one of the most successful career fundraisers in the country, Paul D'Alessandro. So Paul is a CFRE, he's an attorney, but he's still a nice guy. And he's the author of the brand new book, The Future of Fundraising, How Philanthropy's Future is Here with Donors Dictating the Terms. Throughout his career, Paul has personally met with 4,000 uh, individual donors and he's raised over a billion dollars for nonprofits and their missions. Paul, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Andrew. I'm really, really excited to be here with you. We're, we're glad to have you here. We're excited to, to talk about the book and talk about your, your uh, insights on philanthropy. Before I do that, um, before we jump into the questions, though, take a few minutes and just tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are, maybe what's not in your bio and, and what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis right now. Oh, great. I am... Um... I've been in this, uh, I got into this space kind of like uh, most people have, you know, it was an unintended consequence of trying to make some life decisions. And I was uh, practicing law and doing some uh, international, actually doing some international tax consulting out of uh, DC. And we got a call from my alma mater, Notre Dame, about getting involved with uh, a capital campaign for $350 million and running the Southeast US. And I thought, boy, that might be something interesting to do and different because I love Notre Dame. And and that took me on a path of dealing with major donors, doing major campaigns, and really getting uh, a love of hearing people's story and what they're about. I think I started with like, I'm gonna meet all these people who have a ton of money. I'm gonna figure out who is really happy doing what they're doing, and then I'm gonna do that. I still have yet to find, find that person. <laughs> so back in, so, you know, that took me on a path with some ex-domers to start a company. Um, Tom Suttis started, he's passed, and, you know, he was kind of a thought leader. And then we, um, I said, well, I could do this on my own. I didn't really want to travel that much because if anyone was a fundraiser for a major institution, they know they got to get on the road and started the business in 94 and wound up traveling pretty much around the world for working with all sorts of nonprofits. And uh, raised my family, and um, you know I have two grandkids, so life is good. Wow, Paul, tell us about. Um, I mean, I'm so excited about your book, The Future of Fundraising. Tell us a little bit, a bit about it. Uh, why you decided to write this? 
I, I know for me, um, my wife will tell you I've written seven or eight books and only been able to get one published, but, uh, but, uh, but, but tell me about this experience and, uh, and, and what folks are going to get a chance to read. So, you know, I've always wanted to write a book, uh, probably like a lot of people and the, the titles changed over the years, but in the last few years with tech and, um, I'm an avid reader and I, I'm constantly trying to learn things and I go to things that are not in my wheelhouse. And I started to, a couple of things started to happen. So I was at a conference and I started hearing about uh, organizations or companies like Twitch and how gamers are raising money and um, how after the bucket challenge, how one of the major credit card companies got involved in sorting through donor data. And then um, as I was traveling around the country because some very, very much engaged with donors, high net worth donors around the country, and hearing the, their language change, talking from um, charities to causes, and actually not even thinking about giving to charities, but more so how they can have an impact in their community and whether they donated to a nonprofit or whether they created their own low-income business like a L3C or B Corp and, and doing it that way. So, uh, so I said, you know what, I want to address all these things that seem to be cascading on top of each other and the shift um, that's happening in, in this space, because a lot of things have been the same for years and years and years. And I, and I wanted to address those things now. So nonprofits can be um, attuned to what's going on. So Paul, you know, I've, I've gotten into the book, I, I got it two days ago. And I'm, I'm just starting in, I, I'm curious, you know, I, you, you talk a lot early on in the book about AI and machine learning. And, you know, in, in my business and direct response fundraising, we, we use a lot of AI and machine learning, particularly to, to target new donors, find audiences and, and model to, to improve performance. But I, I'm curious to know more about what you see as the future of, of artificial intelligence in our business, broadly in philanthropy. And, you know, what do you think the big benefits are and, and what risks should we be aware of? You know, I, I kind of started dive deep on artificial intelligence and it started with my friend, Sean Olds at Boodle AI and he was speaking at a conference and some of the technology um, that they were using. And um, I know that for instance, like for, for artificial intelligence, you know, they predict that by 2053 that, you know, AI is gonna be doing surgeries, you know, without, without humans. And so I keep thinking about how's that gonna affect our space because so much of what I'm seeing from some of the organizations that support um, nonprofit professional fundraisers, they continue to talk about some of the tried and true methods, but they're not really looking at what's gonna to happen to the fundraiser and how that's gonna affect. We keep drilling down on data. And you know, my goal has always been, um, what are the donors looking for? And you know, they're always looking, not always, but more, more and more want to know what's the impact, what's the return on investment. And with artificial intelligence, um, you get to see that you get to have instantaneous um, information from that. But it also can sort data so fast, faster than we could ever sitting in a room going through books or going through spreadsheets and everything like that. But it also is it as the machine learning happens it actually becomes a predictor of what donors want to give to, what charities they may support. You know, Facebook and Shopify, they're already doing using artificial intelligence right now to kind of identify things that people may be interested in. So I see that happening in artificial 
in, in the nonprofit sector with um, not too much of fundraising having to go out and I find the donor so much, but that the donor being found through artificial intelligence and the donor reaching out to the, to the charity. So that time consuming process of, you know, identification and cultivation is gonna get so, so much narrowed down. So it's gonna um, streamline uh, the efficiency of how we see where the donors are. But on, on the other side of it is kind of what the risks are. And that has to do with, um, you know, you have human programmers and you have biases that go into the <laughs> systems that identify it. And, and uh, with all things, that's a challenge. So back in 2015, um, I think they started donations to artificial intelligence, like nonprofits. So I think about half a billion dollars has been donated towards uh, artificial intelligence nonprofits. Most of it's looking at, you know, uh, its its uses in the nonprofit sector for good. Its uses for, um, you know, the ethical questions that are involved in using artificial intelligence. So, th but so there there are there are a lot of risks in it. And you know what's going to happen is with everyone using their mobile phones, everything, all that. Every time you pick up your phone and use it, there's going to be a learning going on. Like where you know if you're at, for instance shopping for um, food at a pet store, perhaps you're gonna be more inclined to give to an animal rescue shelter yep. and so on and so forth. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting, uh, uh, my friend, Nick Ellinger, uh, who's a chief brand officer at, at Moore Enterprise, um, he just wrote a piece about AI and, um, and you know, essentially talking about um, needing to diversify the donor audience, right? To to more closely look like the overall U.S. population, mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you you mentioned the human programmers and the biases, and it made me think about you know his point of view was right now with uh, the the cooperative databases and machine learning that's being used, uh, unless you're being intentional about it, those models are literally called lookalike models, right? So the, the likely donor audience looks like the three of the guys that are on screen here on this call that none of our listeners can hear, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, all, all three old white dudes, right? Right. Um, and as, as... Hey, you know, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now let's just be clear. I'm the one here with hair, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, th this idea that we, we want to be more inclusive in our, in our outreach and our engagement with donors. We want to build more inclusive uh, donor populations. But if all we're ever doing is, is using machine learning to develop models that look like the donors we've had since 1985, which are all going to be, you know, at least largely uh, older, whiter, and wealthier than the overall population, um, you know, that in and of itself, I think, is a big risk. And, and so it, it warrants a conversation. Um, and I'm glad that you, you, you know, take, take on the AI space in the book, but it warrants conversation around how do we make sure that those, you know, machine learning uh, principles and the programmers behind them are infusing um, a more ethical approach and, and a more equitable approach to how we're building those models so that we're not just focusing on, you know, one small sliver of the population uh, to the detriment of everybody else. Mm. Yeah, and you got to remember too; it's only as good as the input that's going in there. So if yeah. you have somebody, you know, that's you know, I th there are a number of people in this country who want to come off the grid. They don't want anybody <laughs> to know what they're doing. So 
you know, AI is going to help identify those people and then they're going to be looking at it because you have to have the technology in hand, to do something with it. Sure. But, um, you know, that that's going to be, you know, that's going to be something to look at. Paul, you referenced something that just uh, I can't get out of my head. Uh, but with AI, uh, now kind of the tables are going to be reversed. Uh, more donors are going to be checking out uh, the kind of charities that align with them uh, and, and, uh, and kind of flipping the, the, the research. Uh, talk, talk, talk about that. I mean, it, it really is um, a challenge. You know, I think about some of the smaller nonprofits that are out there uh, having to compete with bigger nonprofits uh, for the same donor. Um, uh, how is intelligence being used from the donor side uh, to, to take a look at, uh, at, at charities they might be interested in supporting? Well, you know, we have the, the big three, you know, watchdog sites that look at, you know, charities and, and, you know, some people, you know, use those to, to identify who they want to give to, but from the donor side, I mean, I, I look at my, my role as a fundraiser, right. Which is, you know, you go in and you say, who are, who are our likely suspects and how do we get to know them and how do we get to get in front of them and ask them for a gift? Well, you know, there's a lot of walls being built right now, and we'll talk about DAFs in a minute. But um, from the donor's perspective, if, if they're looking at all the different things that they're interested in, they're going to get coming to them, which is going to give them an opportunity to make a decision on whether they will support something. It could be locally, whether it's a local church, a local school, um, a local food, food bank, or whether it's national. You know, it has to do with some major cause like climate change or, you know, gun rights or what, whatever it is. So, so then what is, so, you know, I'm thinking about the future of the fundraiser is what is the life expectancy of a fundraiser? You know, what do you need them for if they're not that person that needs to build a relationship because the donor's just going to self-select? No, ultimately we all need that human connection and a relationship, but really if I'm, I'm a fundraiser and I'm starting, I'm to say, what is really my role in this in the future? Mm. So you, you mentioned the, the phrase, you, you just said, we're going to talk about DAFs in a second. And, and you know, this is something that Roy and I have had <laughs> uh, probably a dozen conversations about in the last year um, and some, some, you know, very boisterous debate on. Um, we've talked to a number of other fundraisers about this, but what what is it you think that nonprofits need to understand about the donor advised fund environment, um, and how can we all be, I think, you know, more strategic about the way we engage DAF account holders, but also the DAF the fund managers um, to to create greater impact in this area. I have mixed feelings about DAFs because so does Roy through the <laughs> pandemic. The DAF, yes. Yeah, so, so the DAF, you know, the DAFs really were were a great help during the pandemic because people had parked assets, and you know they were concerned. You know, the the, the market had dropped. You know, obviously down to eighteen thousand. I think sometime in March, it's, but people had their assets in their DAF, and so they could then reach in and and support any crisis that was going on. But, you know, they've become, DAFs have become this middle stage in giving, if you will, and that a donor doesn't just give to a charity to have impact, gives the money to a DAF, it's parked, it has, you know, all sorts of different benefits to it, but it's not getting to the end user. So the end user comes to some future date and time, but 
can we really have a better impact today? And there are DAFs where money has been parked and never been given out. So there's a, there's a whole lot of pieces to this thing because at some point the federal government is going to go, wow, there's a lot of money there and people are going to have to start distributing out. And then we might get into this whole thing about where that money can go. But um, you know, to get to the, the, I'm not so much concerned about the fund managers as much as it is the donors. We have a client in New York that we were talking to and we were going through their donor donor list, but we had to pull up all the money that's coming out of their DAFs and then try and identify who that person was that was giving out of their DAF and how much. And you know, we we don't we don't know that. So it adds another another step. And also with DAFs, some fan, you know, you have more parties involved. For instance, I have um, somebody here in New Jersey, and they have millions of dollars, but there's their um, sister and their brother-in-law are involved in the money that they put in the DAF from their sole business. So now it's just not me going to one person. It's, it's going to three people. So it's like approaching a foundation for a grant. And the other piece of it is, too, uh, th there's a limited, so if they know what they're it's like the stock market, you know, you want to have a certain return on investment every year. Well, they have an expectation of a certain return every year, which locks them into a certain disbursement every year. So they keep their personal assets and they just play with the, what's, in, what's in the DAF. You know, it's interesting. I, it, you said, as you kind of indicated, there are people that just park their money there. Fortunately, not everybody's that way. You know, I, I work at a charity and we've recently identified not a big number. Um, actually, it's, I think, 186 people on our file that have a donor advised fund. There's got to be other nonprofits like me. And we're saying, okay, what do we do? Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, we, we, you know we, we know some folks that are already supporters uh, that have money parked in a DAF. How do we get to them and what do we do? That's a great question. And I think it's a, it's a real challenge because unless we know who they are, then we, obviously we can't get to them. And then the other challenge is once we know who they are and we get to them, it almost becomes a decision by committee about mm. what they're going to give to. You know, we, we used to say when you go to corporations, you have to go to them like in the, in the fall because they've already, you know, so they can make their decisions for the year. The money's given out. A lot of people have, you know, their intent on what they wanted to give out from their DAFs over a period of time. Now, they've changed the rules on whether they can make a pledge or not from a DAF. And they, they, they've loosened it up a little bit, um, but, but that doesn't really help us a whole lot. I'm, I'm really just greatly concerned about all that money that gets parked because sure, more money is given year over year, but more money is given and it's parked. And then the, the other piece of it is, I know another a large uh, donor advice fund and the, the metric for the people that work in that, that organization is assets under management, AUM. So they have to get a certain amount of money every year in you know, to cover what's, what goes out to cover their payroll and all that. So there's some, there's some real problems with there. There's numerous problems with it too, which people don't realize. So you have like Notre Dame has a DAF and um, American online. I stayed in my book has a DAF and some nonprofits are forming their own DAFs to protect it. But once that money goes in there, the rules are set by the donor advised funds. So we have that issue that, you know, I addressed in the book, which is, you know, to the national, the, um, donor advised fund said you can't if you have money parked in here you can't distribute any of it to the nra because they're under you know federal investigation but they can have all sorts of rules like that create rules and so so once that money's gone it's gone 
and then you have to live with the rules that they create, not the rules that you create. Wow. So that's an interesting um, thing that's happening. So nonprofits are forming their own DAFs. Sure. And as they're directed by donors, then the one nonprofit is actually dispersing funds to another nonprofit. Mm -hmm. um, well, if that's what the donor wants. Sure. Like take a um, university of Notre Dame, for instance, you know, if you, if you put in, um, let's say $10 million, the rule is, you know, $5 million would be used for distribution within the university system, but then you could distribute the other $5 million, you know, as the interest, whatever, to whatever nonprofit you want it, want it, you want. You want it. So, and now of course with the DAFs, the numbers keep getting smaller and smaller. I mean, you can almost open a DAF with no dollars in it. Right. Well, and, well, but that's an interesting strategy. I hadn't thought about that, uh, forming your own DAF, setting your own guidelines to be of service to people with capacity, uh, while at the same time, parking money in an account that you manage. Right. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like this whole thing with nonprofits. You know, we know that there's too many nonprofits in existence. And sooner or later, you're going to have too many DAFs that are in existence. And that, right. that money just gets watered down. And, right. you know, ultimately, what do we want? We want to have impact. And how do we do that? But, you know, money managers make money. And that's my probably one of my bigger challenges. They make a lot of money with that those parked assets. And it's hard to find out how much, for instance, the person running the uh, Fidelity DAF, you know, makes or Schwab. Mm. You know, we always talk about compensation. And right. They always talk about my compensation. <laughs> what about the fund advisor? <laughs> right. Very interesting. Well, speaking of compensation, I, I, I know uh, that's touched on in the book. You know, it's really interesting uh, just, you know, what's happening. I hate to say this because I don't want to jinx it, but uh, post-pandemic <laughs> in our industry, um, you know, it's it, traditionally turnover, of course, has been very, very high. Um, I often say the biggest pay raise a fundraiser gets is the first day of her new job. And, <laughs> um, and, and it's, a, it's a challenge. Talk about compensation and what's going on in the industry. There's a lot that has to do with comp. I mean, I think I read in the Chron Chronicle of Philanthropy that like 50,000 people in, the, in our space, you know, lost jobs. And, you know, it's, it's significant and, and then there's going to be more coming. Um, it's always been an issue. I, I don't know where it started, but I would imagine it started with the association of fundraising professionals, creating a, a code of conduct that said, you know, you can't um, benefit from, you know, gifts that are made. But again, that rule has never changed, but everything else has changed on where money comes from, how it comes from, you know, how it's generated. But, for years and years and years, it's always been kind of on the low pay. You know, we've got to stay within a certain number, but you, you don't get good talent. But now you have some nonprofits and I, and I cite Charity Water that says, hey, we want to have the best because we want to raise the most, you know, and they, they create different incentives like the pool, which was in a New York Times article that took stock from um, publicly traded companies that went into this pool to, to pay for bonuses and the like. Um, there are numerous charities around the country, and they're not members of the, the AFP or sign a code of conduct that pay incentive comp and bonuses to fundraisers for doing well. And actually, it's an enticement to hire somebody. And I get the call all the time. Well, can I hire somebody for $50,000? We can't afford the $90,000 salary and bonus them up. And I'm like, sure you can, because it fits within a reasonable comp within the IRS. So 
it's it's kind of it's that's why I said it's kind of the dirty little secret is that it's happening and it's happening more and more. You you just don't people aren't talking about it. You know, major universities are doing it, hospitals are doing it, even small nonprofits. Yeah, you just you just you just have to disclose it, right? Sure, you have to disclose it, but it's not something that you don't have to lead with it. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to lead with it. You don't. You're not. You're not really going to go find it. I mean, if you look at the 990, the top paid employees, you're going to see. You'll see it in there if they fall within that. But we work with the charity out out west, and they had probably 30 some odd fundraisers on staff, and some of them were young when they started. I remember they hit, they, they exceeded their numbers during a campaign year. And I think probably 20% of them doubled their salary based on bonuses. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there was nothing, nothing wrong with that because it's still less than what, you know, somebody who's performed at that level should get paid. Right. So, and, 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 oh, and, and well, I was just going to say, and a lot less than if they'd left that charity and you have to replace them with somebody else and you have the churn that goes on in our industry um, that just uh, keeps a lot of nonprofits on their knees, never able to grow. Yeah. And I I think too, part of the churn is that people um, don't really understand what they're getting into. You know, they don't embrace what, how, how challenging this job of fundraising can be. You know, I always say when I come onto a client site, you know, Somebody's going to move up, move out, or move over. You know, they're going to move out because they don't know what the heck they're doing. They're going to move over because it's too much work for them, or they're going to move up because they're just going to thrive and say, "Wow, this is what I was looking for." You know, you you mentioned something uh, early on in your your statement about comp about I think you said the reasonable uh, comp, yeah, comp yeah, right. as, as far as the IRS goes, and, and I I feel like that's an area where boards and, and CEOs just don't have an, a real understanding for what that, what it means or what, maybe what it should mean. Um, and it, it feels like it's open to vast interpretation. Right. Um, and I don't know about you, but I don't know that I, I don't think I've ever run into a nonprofit organization that, um, that had any kind of formal compensation strategy R- react to that. Am I wrong or, or, or no, you seeing the same exact thing? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, in, in 30 years of doing this, I can't, remember a time that anybody really got challenged on comp for either excessive comp. I mean, and of course you could say, well, take a look at um, some of the academic institutions, you know, in the seven figures or the hospitals that people, people get paid, you know, is it reasonable? It's, it's, it's not, it's not been challenged because it court, you know, if we do, do a level playing field, the private sector is still making, they're still making more money than sure we are probably 10x or 20x, you know, for a comparable organization. Right. And we, and there's no, there's no stock attached to anything that we do. There's um, not a big profit share or anything like that. You know, we do what we do. And, you know, I got into this business because, you know, um, I I wanted to do something, you know, greater than, you know, making a whole lot of money. Actually, a priest said to me, I'm I'm so happy you're not going to work for the almighty buck. Now there's a price that we've all paid for doing that. But, you know, we didn't get into it for, you know, getting rich. But at the same time, you know, it's important that we get paid for the hard work that we do, you know, and, and it's, it needs to be recognized by the, by the boards. But some people see this as like a hobby and it's, it's not. This is a real job with a lot of, uh, a lot of activity that has to happen. In it. Yeah. And that's why I think people roll out. They just get frustrated with it. And um, 
it's like, well, I could go out in the private sector and just make another 30, 40% more money and be happier. Yeah. I mean, or they become consultants like you and I did, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. And, and try and, and help people kind of make some decisions. I mean, I've, you know, I've helped people make decisions to move on or to try and um, get a, a higher pay. But the pay, you know, I've seen all sorts of pay scales around the country. I mean, in New York, we had a client and they they were trying to find a major gift officer and they hired somebody, this charity hired somebody who was $95,000 with just three years of experience, <laughs> you know, but, you know, they wait, you know, we say you need to, with major gifts and stuff, you need to fail fast. So, you know, if there's a the turn, then... Uh, and you, you could tell right away whether they're going to make it or not. I've said that often. Of course, the pandemic really, it's tough to let somebody go. Although a lot of nonprofits did when folks weren't performing, when donors wouldn't meet with them. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a tough year. It's craziness. But, you know, some of those, some of, it's, it has to do with their ability to adapt too. I mean, we were doing Zoom calls because we have a client over in Pakistan and we were doing Zoom meetings, you know, two years prior to all this. And then we, you know, for, we did, we've been doing Zoom solicitations ever since March and have gotten some six figure gifts from donors because that was their, that's where their comfort was. Mm. And uh, so I think people just got frozen and it, and what, what's troubling is that, you know, nonprofits kind of get frozen, frozen in this space. Like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible thing to happen, but there's terrible things that have been happening for years, you know, I could go back to 2001 or 97 when the market crashed, when the IPO bubble burst, you know, when um, the housing market crashed, there's always been something that kind of stops people in their heels because it has to do with the flow of money. And, and they, you just have to be, it's not, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And you just have to be ready for it and be flexible. I, I would say problem solve your way to the goal, so you adapt. Yeah, it's interesting. Just the whole concept of adapting, um, the new currency, the cryptocurrency. You even talk about blockchain. Uh, talk some about that and how that's impacting philanthropy. Well, you know, I, I've had to get my my head wrapped around you know blockchain and digital currency, and uh, again, it's just one of those things that you know it's kind of happening behind the scenes and it's going to creep up on everybody because we're going to this digital cashless society you know if you, you're like walking down a street and you dropped a ten dollar bill you know it'd be gone but now if you have like this digital chip you drop it you know it's gone there's some poor guy i guess he was given stock uh, some bitcoins that were really cheap and then he found out that they were worth 240 million dollars and he um, ran eight passwords and he couldn't unlock it. He only had two more tries. And if he didn't get the, I don't know what happened to him, but he didn't get, get his password. He lost $240 million. But what's happening in this space is there, you know, and it, it's been talked about for years, they want more transparency and, and blockchain, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of the backbone of the digital currency. And that's allowing nonprofits to do that. So you have something like, uh, BitGive, which is a donate donation platform, and um, or the Pineapple Foundation, which is a crypto foundation, and part of the thing about blockchains is it, you can see the benefits to the end users, which is ultimately kind of what the donors want to see. Is like, is my money really going to do what you say it's going to do? And that that allows that kind of transparency. It also cuts out a whole bunch of middlemen and transfer fees across borders and all that. So again. 
you know, what the, this is the whole part about donors dictating the terms. You know, what do they want to see? They want to see impact and they don't, they want their money to be optimized as much as they can. And blockchain philanthropy is going to allow that to a certain extent. I mean, you could go on GiveTrack and BitGive right now and look and see the platforms that they have that allow you that allow you to do that. And of course, if we go back to AI, you open your phone, go on one of the mobile platforms, AI is going to pick up all this and see what you're doing and say, okay, he, he likes international charities, he likes people who are, you know, starving, whatever it is, and it is going to be self-directing of things that you may be interested in. But it's not something that's easily understood. There are things called smart contracts. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a study. It's something that I'm really studying and trying to, to figure out. Very interesting. Yeah. It's yeah, even stock transfers. I know, you know, some, some nonprofits have, have uh, kind of pre-built in rules that, that, Hey, when, when assets like that are donated, we're going to turn it into cash the day it happens. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and roll it into programs. Um, are you seeing certain kinds of policies or guidelines uh, set up for, for uh, digital currency? Well, Fidelity, uh, Fidelity staff's got like $100 million in crypto that, you know, and, and, you know, to be distributed. And, you know, look at what uh, Elon Musk did with Tesla. You could buy, you know, you could buy Tesla with Bitcoin. So again, it, it's like, it's not a matter of if, it's, it's when and are you ready for it? So you could be at the, you could be sitting in your board meeting and say, hey, look, you know, we need to address this now and how are we going to deal with it? Or you could wait, like, like so many boards do, say, hey, you know, I just heard that so-and-so got $10 million from Bitcoin. You know, what's our policy on that? And that's why I said the future really is now. Like, mm -hmm. wh what are you guys doing to address all these things that are happening so you could capitalize on on the the revenue because you know ultimately for me it's it's not just you know uh donor money it's you know whatever whatever vehicles whatever re revenue streams you could create to exist to survive need to be addressed and if tech is going to be one of those areas that allows you to increase revenue and and kind of cut costs at the same time without heavy load of personnel then start planning towards that now because it's it's right there. It's there. Yeah, that's a lot different than try to figure it out once it's already passed you, right? Which, which is what it feels like the sector typically does is we, we lag behind in so many areas that we're still trying to catch up to, you know, things like email automation that the, you know, the commercial industry has been doing now for over a decade. Right? It's like catch up. You know, yeah. It's like, how do you catch up? And it's like what I mentioned with Twitch and Twitch in the gamers, you know, I, I think the numbers might be over a hundred million dollars, how much the gamers are given to charity through Twitch. And yeah, of course you're, you're, you're an exec sitting in a nonprofit trying to feed the homeless. And you're like going, what the heck's Twitch? And how do I, how I plug into that? But the donors will help you plug into it. If you show that you're open for it. Yeah. I guess, you know, the, I always try to balance that with, the, the challenge of, of organizations chasing after the, you know, shiny objects, right? Because you, you probably saw this too, but right, right after the ice bucket challenge, I, I can't tell you how many organizations I met with that said, what's our ice bucket challenge. Mm -hmm. And, and they were fully willing to go spend, you know, 300 staff hours 
and 10, 20 grand to figure out how to do something in that space. But at the same time, complaining that they're not raising enough revenue when they're also unwilling to invest that same amount of time and, and expense in building relationships with major donors that are already giving to their charities. So I think, you know, I I always struggle with, yes, some of these new, you know, technology platforms and and new means of engagement are valuable and and organizations should explore them. And if they can, they can use them to their benefit. Great. But at the same time, like if you're struggling to make payroll as an organization or to fund mission and you're unwilling to, to do the work with the donors you already have that can probably fund your entire cause if you engage them right. Like you, in, in my opinion, you almost have no business trying to explore Twitch if you're not doing the fundamental things well already. I don't react to that for me. I totally, totally agree with you, Andrew. I mean, it's, um, you know, most organizations are, are reactive. They don't have um, strategic development plans with a five-year lookout. So, you know, what are my revenue streams? and and how how it's going to change and so and of course if you're and I, and I know that there's people looking at this who are one-man shops you know one-man development and fundraising shops i'm like i can't even get my newsletter out the door so how am i going to look at something that i don't even right. understand but it, again it's like well let's let's plan it out you know how much money you know are you going to get the, the board wants in their strategic plan to raise and accomplish so much and then you have to look at what are what are my revenue streams? Well, major gifts, planned gifts, you know, the traditional things, events, you know, direct mail, phone, wh- whatever it is. But then you need to look at some, what are the other things that are potential revenue generators for me where I could do less, maybe put less time in that I need to at least maybe put on year two or three and have some, you know, committee starting to look at. And that, that could be whatever tech would bring to the table. And, and then of course, where does prospect research fit into that? And does, how can tech help me? Because you know, you know what it is with so many other things. You know, I tell my clients, sometimes you're at a competitive disadvantage because you don't have certain tools. So what uh, some nonprofits do well and others not because they're investing in the competitive tools to make themselves successful for the long term. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, but, but again, it has to be looked at. And my my feeling is that you know nonprofits, if you're going to exist 100% on charitable dollars, it's going to be difficult. You have to find some alternative revenue sources. You know, it's like I mentioned too, like Habitat for Humanity International. Their restores, you know, are a great boon to them in terms of you know operating dollars. You know, they're sure they got goods donated, but they're also generating a ton of money that helps sustain operations. Yeah, for sure. So. We've just got a few minutes left. I, I, I want to end us on a conversation about privacy. So you, you talk about that a lot in the book. And I think, you know, it's it's very timely to be having that conversation because so much is is poised to change in that area. We've got, you know, right now, um, you know, the case before the Supreme Court related to California's desire to have nonprofits start publishing and providing them with uh, details about, you know, their, their major donors and, and, and publishing uh, contact information and things like that, and what the you know what the risks are to the donor community and to organizations around that. We've got internationally GDPR, but but you know domestically here California's privacy law. There's a there's a, a, a pretty uh, in in my in my opinion a pretty devastating potential uh, privacy law being considered in the Oklahoma legislature right now that would basically turn off 
uh, nonprofits' abilities to acquire new donors. And I think things like that are popping up uh, and will continue to pop up uh, across the country. Talk to us about your perspective on on the privacy issue and where you think we're headed uh, as a country around that. So there's there's two pieces with with respect to donor privacy. There's this there's the first part, which is a Supreme Court case, which is that in New York, New Jersey, and California, Section B on the form, you have to identify all donors who give $5,000 or more. And that would have a, a silencing effect on donors giving to, to charities because they don't want to be tagged on who they're giving to. I, it's, it's something that's, you know, it's, it's your money. You decide what you want to do with it. But there's a reason that those states have asked that because they want to call people out, I would imagine. But, but on the other side of it, and the thing that you address, what's probably just a greater concern is your own is data privacy. And so like organizations like Facebook and Google, they own all that data so they can market and do whatever they want. But you're, you're, I think what we're thinking about is the people who buy lists and sell lists and have names, all those people fall under that whole data privacy thing and the, the laws that come under the states. It's, it's Nevada. It's like you said, it's Oklahoma, it's New Jersey, it's California. And um, it like the GDPR, it's, it's, causes a lot of steps and difficulties in trying to um, get it, get information out. And it's gonna affect how donors give to, give to charities. It's gonna, it's really gonna affect greatly the, the charities because there's gonna add a whole lot of regulation to what they do. Um, I spoke to a research, a prospect research company, one of the bigger ones. And I said, well, how are you guys, what are you guys doing about donor privacy because they, you know, they call data like Blackboard and iWave, they call all the data and they, they own that data. And they said, well, you know, we give it to the, the charities, look at it, but legal told us that it's for them to decide what to do their issue. Not, it's really not their issue. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to come into question either. I mean, every charity is going to have to make its own decision about it, but there are uh, real legal liabilities and fines that come from this if they enforce it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as I was looking at the Oklahoma uh, legislation, you know, it, it seems like some of these are coming from this this backlash against big tech, right? Mm -hmm. States are, are saying, oh, you know, the way that Google and Facebook are dealing with, with consumer data is inappropriate, so we want to put these regulations in place. But I think what's missed is, you know, like you said, those organizations, they're largely exempted from the legislation mm -hmm. because to use their platform, you have to opt in. So, right. so you know, they're, they're getting a pass in this. And really what it's going to do is it's going to cripple organizations, nonprofit organizations' ability to, um, to cost-effectively engage with supporters. And it's going to just put a ton more uh, steps and red tape in place that, uh, you know, maybe some of the biggest charities can, can figure that out and have the, the legal teams and the tech teams to, to sort it out. But, you know, try being a, a one or two-person shop trying to get communications out and find new supporters, uh, you know, you, just to comply with those regulations, you're probably going to end up, you know, expending your budget. You know, I, I think it's crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, like, um, you know, I'm just thinking like Facebook, for instance, it's going to force nonprofits into some tech stuff that they might not want to do just so they could have access to the information, but then still Facebook is going to control, you know, this is my belief and I don't know it for sure. It's going to control the amount of users and the direction and and who sees what on on the on the site so it's it's going to be a great challenge that's why again 
if I, if I was going into a board meeting and I'm the executive director, you can't sit and wait for something to happen and react to it. You have to plan and say, how is this going to affect our bottom line if this law goes? I mean, California is already a place, right? So how is this going to affect our bottom line so that we don't lose any more um, revenue? And what do we need to do to capture as much donor information within you know, our, our system? Um, there's things, and I mentioned in the book, data boxes, which is ultimately, you know, everybody's going to have their own, be able to patrol their own data and see who uses it. And so that's another thing that's coming on, but we don't know where, where that, that's going to take us. I think this goes to sue some of the other things about consolidation of the market. I think a bunch of nonprofits aren't going to be able to survive in this environment um, with the regulation. And I mean, I hate to say it, but there's going to be consolidation mergers and, and, uh, a look at how they can have greater impact in communities, but it's not going to take away the human condition of wanting to do good because that's why we exist. We want to have impact and, you know, we, we, we're moved by something and we want to make a difference and nonprofits, you know, allow us to do that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, well, Paul, thank you for your insights today. I really appreciate you being here. Um, I think the book's a great read. The book is The Future of Fundraising, How Philanthropy's Future is Here with Donors Just Dictating the Terms. Uh, where can people reach you if they want to learn more or want to connect with you directly? Um, thanks so much, Andrew and Roy. I, I really appreciate it. I um, you know, I rebranded, I have my the consulting business, but rebrand rebranded under high impact nonprofit advisors. So Paul at highimpactnonprofit.com. Um just shoot me an email because we, we're going to do a lot of speaking, um, coaching. We're going to do uh, what I call learning circles for groups and um, boot, boot camps and talk about a lot of these things that we've, we've addressed in the book. And also look at the other stuff that's coming up because there's, you know, every time I turn around, there's something else happening in this space that's going to affect the, the nonprofit sector, you know, especially where there's a, a need for um, dollars. So Paul at highimpactnonprofit.com. And um, I'm just, like I said, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to do this with you guys. Yeah, we're, we're grateful for you being here, man. And I hope uh, I hope the book's a great success and I uh, encourage all of our, our listeners to go out to Amazon and grab it. If you're looking for inspiration to help you raise more money for your cause, I've got just the thing for you. Jump over to my website, andrewolson.net, and click on the free resources tab. You can download my ebook, 30 Days to More Revenue. In it, you'll find 30 specific ideas, easy to implement tips that'll help you raise more money right now. Again, that's andrewolson.net and click on the free resources link. Uh, thanks again for being here, man. Sure, thanks.